0: Welcome to All Power to the Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute, where social justice, human development, and community building come together. This is where you will meet activists, artists, teachers, scholars, helpers, and healers who are bringing creativity, hope, and possibility to individuals and communities all over the world. today welcome to all power to the developing podcast i'm your host desiree wanden and today I have a very special guest with me i have dr daryl heller of south bend director of the civil rights heritage center in south bend indiana how are you doing with me
1: i'm I'm doing well thank you it's good to be here man
0: yes yes how's the weather out there man we're trying to get a little sun out here in new york city how's that Uh weather out there in indiana
1: well, I'm going to tell you, it's um, it's pretty gray here. This is, a, this is a gray part of the world. So, you know, winter is still not quite decided whether it's going to go away or not yet. <laughs>
0: yeah, I know. Well, we're here with you today. Very excited to have this conversation with you today. Um, you do a lot of great work over at the Civil Rights Heritage Center. So, so happy to speak about that. But let's take it all the way back because activism is something that's not new to you. Mm. So no, where, where where does activism start for you? And and when do you first get into activism? Um, did it start for you when you were very young?
1: No, you know, it's in it's I always described it as a windy road. Um, you know, as a kid, the one defining feature of my own childhood is I was a military brat. Of mm-hmm. sorts, my dad was in the Air Force and I went to 12 different schools between first and 12th grade. So it was a lot of moving, a lot of new schools, um, kind of. And in, in that process, you know, what's what what I learned in each move is that if I, if I wanted to kind of settle in and make new friends, that that would take time. And so I would always find my way to the library the first day of school. And so I became a reader, and books were my friends until I made friends, um, and that and that was good, you know. But um, nobody. I come from a a family, poor Southern South South Carolina's home, Mm -hmm. um, grandson of of sharecroppers. You know, my dad joined the military to get away from crushing poverty. I mean, so everybody that I knew in terms of family was poor, and but poverty is poverty, and everybody was living basically on the same level. Um, It wasn't until I got to college, and I kind of the story of me getting to college is another story by itself, but. I was first generation college kid. Neither of my parents actually finished high school. Um I got to college and for whatever reason, I think the background of just having read a lot and been really curious about the world, um, I majored in philosophy of, you know, much to my parents' chagrin. So <laughs> they, they didn't even know what that was, you know, when I first came home and made the announcement, really excited about what I was learning. Um but it was, but it was really important for me to develop as a critical thinker. Um and philosophy was just this wonderful discipline for me to be able to like really engage the world kind of at least intellectually and ask, you know, big questions, ask hard questions and really grapple with what kinds of answers I could come up with. Yeah. So Some, somewhere along that way, I discovered Marx though, and kind of philosophy as a philosopher. And that helped me make sense of the world in some ways.
0: And let's take it let's take it back a little bit. You said that you came from a, a military background. Um, your father was in the military, and um, you know this is at a time in the, in America that was very prejudiced. So how is it having a, a a father in the military at this time in history, and also moving around a lot in the United States at this time in history for you? Did that have it? Uh, impact on you and, and what impact did it have on you and how you saw the world if you could think back to that time
1: yeah yeah no this is just a good question and um for me because i grew up on military bases a lot and and my my dad was just a sergeant you know a private and a sergeant so it was it was it's it kind of like growing up in working class neighborhoods in a working class neighborhood um but almost but always multiracial. Um, like I never I never lived in an all-Black environment, and I never really, really even lived in an all-White environment. Like a, a lot of the military was integrated. We lived in these working-class base housing neighborhoods. And so the between that and the moving, you know, I learned to just accept people. And, you know, my, my, my mom in particular, you know, I always say that anything good in me that you like, you can thank my mom for it. <laughs> Um, she and was, she was pretty amazing in teaching us to take everybody at face value until, you know, not to prejudge and to really give everyone the benefit of the doubt. So, you know, as I, you know, I learned how to discern, you know, people, but also not to judge them until they give me a reason, <laughs> until they did something, yeah. <laughs> but not to come with the prejudgment. Mm. So that, so that moving around, had two qualities to it and i think that have been enduring for me one which is one is i can get along pretty well in any environment um i'm pretty comfortable in a wide range of spaces and it also um taught me to like really be able to relatively quickly um suss out where people are coming from you know they come trying to figure out who's going to what click or what group of kids I'm gonna be friends with or try to insert myself with, you know, to kind of discern who are the bad boys, who are the nerdy ones, who are these, who's this group, what's that group, and then where do I fit in in any one of them? Mm. And that was, that was important.
0: And, and moving fast forward, um, when you went to college, you said you studied philosophy, which was something your parents had not <laughs> expected you to study. And you said that, you know, you learned how to ask big questions. What were some of the questions that that um you had on your mind at that time? What were some of these big questions, small questions, medium-sized questions? What were some of these questions that was going through your mind um, in your college days?
1: Yeah, when I when I started, one of the at- attractions of philosophy is that I actually wanted to be a writer um, as a you know, in my range of reading as a teenager, you know, I discovered the Harlem Renaissance writers. Particularly and Black authors. And so I was reading Baldwin, James Baldwin at 14, you know, on my own. Um, Discovered Nikki Giovanni and, you know, the Black poet. And I loved poetry, still love poetry. Um, And I wanted to write like that. And so deciding to go to college, what I really wanted to major in was creative writing. But there was no school in South Carolina at the time that had creative writing as a major. And so my rationale for philosophy was that if I can't do creative writing, then I just need to learn as much and as broadly as I can. And philosophy seemed like that broad discipline and um, you know to really kind of scratch that intellectual itch. And part of one of the big questions that was I had always been curious about is religion. And so my first philosophy of religion class, for example, blew me away because it was like, what? You can ask questions about whether God exists or not and not get beat up, not get slapped, you know, because um, I, I grew up as a, my mom's a Jehovah's Witness. Mm. And one of the things you don't do is question the existence of God, because God is a given. Right. And that's comes from that good Southern Baptist roots as well. But in philosophy, I could ask that question and I could like think about it and I could read people who really grapple with those questions. And also questions of justice and ethics was another really important class that was formative, and political theory, um, you know, just kind of thinking about the question of why why is racism exist? Mm-hmm. and I didn't even know if I had the language for it at the time, but I was learning that language, and why was there such disparities in wealth and people having access to goods, and that's that's where Marx in discovering Marx. Um, again, as a philosopher, but you know, I went through his manifesto in the German ideology and really began kind of thinking about these. And then what really galvanized it for me, and this would be the beginning of my activism, is I had a professor who had a grant to work with migrant farm workers. Um, so I was in Charleston, South Carolina, um, there's an East Coast migrant stream that comes through Charleston picking tomatoes. Tomatoes was the cash crop. And I worked with this professor over two summers as an undergraduate. And, you know, again, I knew from poverty. I mean, my grandparents didn't get running water on either side of my family. They didn't get running water until the 1970s. Um, So we were hump, I mean, visiting would hump, you know, five gallon um, buckets of water twice a day for all of the needs of the household. So I knew from poverty, but what I saw with farm workers was clearly adjunct oppression. It's like this was beyond, this was beyond, and it pissed me off as much as it upset me. Um, because what I witnessed was people whose labor was picking the food that would be bought in the supermarket, but they couldn't afford to go to the supermarket to buy the food that they were picking. <laughs> you know, and that's, to me, that was just and that wasn't just wrong, it was immoral that we live in a country and a nation that everyone says is the wealthiest nation in the world and we have this kind of poverty and this kind of oppression. So when I graduated, when I finished with a degree in philosophy and, you know, really the only thing you can do with a degree in philosophy, generally if you want to make it be upwardly mobile is go back to school <laughs> and get a, and get an advanced degree. And so my my idea was, I want to get um, a PhD in philosophy and teach, and that that was something I want to keep thinking about these things. But I also needed to sit out a year. Um, the other formative part of my activist development was that the college I went to was, and I'll just name it, it's the College of Charleston in South Carolina. It's now the University of South University of Charleston. But at the time, in the, in the late 70s, it was the College of Charleston, and it was my by, my description is it was a small um, liberal arts southern conservative lily white racist <laughs> college mm. um, that forced me to become active. I mean, in order to survive on that campus and in that environment, I just became active in the Black Student Union. I joined the only Black fraternity um, because it was the fraternity was the folks that were engaging issues on campus. And um, I decided I needed to support that. And so that kind of got me kind of engaged in some things, but it was after I graduated and I needed to sit out a year to kind of just recover. (laughs) Um, And I didn't want to get a straight job. And someone mentioned or told me about this organization in Washington, D.C. that did work um, with the homeless and around homelessness and hunger. And that was really intriguing to me to to learn more about how the world is structured and what this looks like. So the farm workers was the first thing that really opened my eyes and pushed me in this direction. The next thing was the first time in Washington, D.C., I I, I saw a soup kitchen Mm. and I didn't even know what that was until I got there. And this organization called the Community for Creative Nonviolence. Um, had a soup kitchen twice a day. They would feed people in this back alley, literally three blocks from the capital. And in this line that I saw for the first time of a soup kitchen line, about forty people, and the vast majority of them were senior citizens, were elder. You know, in my community, we would call them elders, and they re- and we respect our elders. These were senior citizens, um, many of them with clear mental health issues. Um, and it was just another one of these outrages of how could we treat our seniors like this? That, that this was another moment of like this outrage at the immor- immorality of a system that's producing this kind of carnage on human beings. And so I, I I thought I would just spend a year in DC and then go to graduate school, but that year turned into five before I left. And um, and that was started a long trajectory of activism. Um, I went from DC to um moved to Boston and did work around HIV and AIDS. Um and it was in the this was now the mid-80s, mid-late eighties, where the AIDS epidemic had been had begun to morph. From being seen as a white male gay disease to infecting overwhelmingly communities of color, and particularly through IV drug use, and, and then brothers on the down low, there was all kinds of mm-hmm. causes for it. But it was it was beginning to to wreak havoc in the black and brown communities. Um, so I I became a, a substance abuse counselor and an HIV AIDS pre and post test counselors, what they called them at the time to really counsel people as they were going through getting their own tests to see if they were positive or not, and supporting folks in that way. And that trajectory led to, um, well, it was kind of in that milieu that I met, um, what would be, I guess we called it the tendency at the time. Mm -hmm. But I met folks in Boston, organizers in Boston, that were doing um, all kinds of really I thought amazing work because I had lo- I had been looking for an organization to work with to be engaged with with serious and fundamental structural social change. Mm-hmm. So I looked at every left organization I could find um, from the communist work from the Communist Party to the Socialists, the Democratic socialists. I, I mean I looked at all of them and none of them to me were doing the kind of s- substantive change in work that I thought needed to happen. But the folks in the tendency were—they were building organizations and institutions. They had a political wing. They had a psychology wing. They had a cultural wing that was actually doing stuff. So I, I became a part of that tendency for I don't know five or six years. Uh,
0: two question, um, two questions for you.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you mentioned that you 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 grew up in poverty, um, where your parents grandparents and yourself witnessing poverty, and then being an undergrad and seeing the poverty with the agricultural workers, mm-hmm. going to D.C. and seeing um, these elders in the soup kitchen. Um, this is just a question for you. What, what do you think poverty does to oneself? What, what do you feel happens to a person under poverty and, and, and how it truly affects them? And then my second question for you is, as you are witnessing this and as you're being involved in all of these different uh, forms of activism, how are you building resiliency? Um, I I find it, I'm sort of remarked when people could sit and saddle, and be in these type of conditions or be around these type of things and still continue to to work in it and still continue to build in it. Mm-hmm. How were you building resiliency for yourself throughout these early years of being involved as an activist um, encountering racism on your, your your college campus
1: and things like that? Yeah, you know, the in college, like the racism I experienced and witnessed in college was just, in some ways, in one sense it was, again, something relatively new to me and, and, and outrageous, you know, um, And the way I dealt with that was by getting involved, you know, and working with other black students and, and working to try to change the environment for other for new, new and incoming black students. So for example, when I went to my freshman orientation, I walked around campus all day and never saw another black person. I mean, actually, I did see the two black people I saw one was Landscaping, and the other was in the dining hall. Um, but I didn't see another black student. I didn't see any black faculty. I just walked around all day, and because I had been in really mixed environments, I, that didn't bother me as much. But it was noticeable. But I, but as I started my first year, and I saw, like how faculty and professors were treating black students and treating me, you know, I was like, I'm not the I'm not the smartest bulb on the tree, but I'm not the dimmest either. <laughs> And you know, kind of being related to like I was a dumb shit, or not given what seemed to me the same amount of time and attention that white students were getting. So um, it's clear, I started, this is the best example. I started at a class of about 60 Black students as a freshman, and six of us graduated four years later. And so the attrition rate was phenomenal, because the college really just wanted Black students for their money they didn't really care about supporting them once they got there so being active and involved was an important part of you know surviving and then later you know and as as an activist like out in the world doing work you know both at the soup kitchen around the communities with hiv and aids um, one of the things i'm always aware of is that despite being black and having my own background that i I got privilege. like i got a college degree and i'm there by choice unlike a lot of the folks that i saw um again another example of outrageous work of working in shelters and seeing the number of vietnam veterans for example that were homeless and many of them were drug addicted many of them were dealing with ptsd and they don't even have that language then i don't think but they were clearly traumatized and and traumatized and unsupported. And so that, you know, it was just kind of seeing these things, knowing that I was there by choice, but working and feeling like the work that I could do and that almost was obligated to do, to work to change the conditions that was producing that. And again, I had been thinking about this critically, it's like how how does the world how does this society um, developed and shape that this is the outcome for people around race and around class? Um, And that's why um, joining an organization and finding like minded political people was a critical part of being able to sustain that over time as well. Uh, Because you can't do I don't think you can do it alone. I mean, if you don't have relationships and other people that you can kind of take some of that to or have those conversations with. Um, You know, we are social beings, and we do need to have relationships with like minded people to not only sustain ourselves, but if we're going to do the kind of transformative work that's necessary. It's got it's got to be a collective effort, and we have to build those relationships and the collective. resources and institutions that can push back against it um, so that for me that was was was, was key and continues to be i mean you know when we talk later i like work I, mean, I learned how to build coalitions with folks kind of through that knowing that you know i i i have i have a my own insight, but I don't have all of the insight. I don't have all the knowledge and I have my piece and if we can bring other people and other pieces together. Then we got something much bigger and stronger and more productive and and efficient, I think. So building those kinds of relationships, building those kinds of coalitions, building and working to build a common understanding. Um, So education has always been, ongoing education has always been a critical part of my own development as well, whether it's formal education, I may mean, still take classes. Um, but also continuing to read broadly, and and to, you know, listen to the news, but then make up my own damn mind about it and not just go with what what's handed out, you know, yeah. And so I work with a lot of my students, the outcome I want with my students is always, you don't need to remember the dates. But what I do want you to do is understand is how things will work together, like how this but this particular whatever event works and um, is an outgrowth of something else and then what came after that, like to be able to think critically about um, the world we live in.
0: Definitely. We're gonna take a little short break. When we come back, we're gonna be speaking about, more about the Civil Rights Heritage Center and how Dr. Daryl Heller became to be the director of that. We'll also be speaking about a little bit of restorative justice. And uh, upcoming Juneteenth, and seeing a little bit about how Daryl Heller sees Juneteenth and how he celebrates (laughs) Juneteenth.
1: Right on. Melissa Meyer, Associate Director of the Eastside Institute. Welcome to All Power to the Developing. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. In each episode, we introduce you to some amazing performance activists, play revolutionaries, and developmentalists from around the world who talk to us about their creative grassroots efforts to build a better world. If you like what you hear, please follow and share the series. You can find us on Amazon, Spotify, and Podbean. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. Like everything at the Institute, the
0: growth of all power to the developing depends upon the people who create it and benefit from it.
1: We hope you're one of them. Thanks for your support. And now back to our conversation.
0: And we are back. I hope that wasn't too long. We are back with Dr. Daryl Heller and we're speaking a lot about the Civil Rights Heritage Center in South Bend, um, which opened in 2010, if I'm not mistaken.
1: That's right. I guess. Um,
0: let's speak a little bit about so you you're just going along, um Engage in different activists, activistic activities, and um Throughout that time, also you you met the development community, uh, people like Dan Freeman, Lois Holtzman. Um yep. How did it come to you being the director of the Civil Rights Heritage Center in South Bend, Indiana? And also, could you give us a, a, a brief history of this of this center? Because prior to that, it used to be a a public pool, correct?
1: Correct. Correct. Yeah, so just a quick trajectory of how I ended up in South Bend because I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) I I lived in New York for 14 years and then um, I lived in Chicago for 10 years. And so I'm the big city guy, you know, and I think of myself as an East Coast guy as well. So that I'm in a relatively small city in the Midwest still startles me sometimes. Mm. Um, But how I got here was when I was in New York, I had a job and I wanted a promotion and I needed to get a master's degree. Um, and I needed to just get MA after my name to be able to apply for, um, to direct a program. And so I, I, I got myself into Columbia University and got a master's in American studies. And because because, because I wanted to satisfy that intellectual bent that I, that I, this continues to be part of who I am. And um, I wrote a master's thesis on a labor strike in the 19th century in Brooklyn. And the questions I was trying to grapple with is like, why, is, why are corporations so powerful? And why is labor so weak as an, as an organization? Why are labor organizations weak? Why are corporations so powerful? Who thought that corporations should be considered people? Um, and have Fourteenth Amendment protected rights. That was kind of what I was trying to get at in my master's thesis. And I wrote it, and I, it was a terminal program. I didn't expect to go any further. I had no Ph.D. ambitions, but I was still interested in trying to grapple with this question. And what someone told me was that if you really like that kind of research you're doing, and you know, there's Ph.D. programs will pay you to go to school if you can get in. Like, if you can get a fellowship, they'll pay you money to actually read the books that you're reading. So I thought, shit, I want to get in that line. (laughs) And I got accepted at the University of Chicago, which is how I got to the Midwest Um, So and how I got to Chicago. Got my doctorate um, at the University of Chicago, taught for a couple of years at the University of Illinois in Chicago. was trying to figure out what what my next move was. And I really liked being in the academic environment, but I also know, know that I need to have a foot in communities. I need to continue as an activist. I think I would be an activist first and an academic second. Um, so I try to combine the two. And I saw this job ad for the director of a civil rights heritage center at a university. So I thought that's like right up my alley. And it was in, it's kind of the ad was director of the IU South Civil Rights Heritage Center at the Ingeman Public Natatorium. I had no idea what a natatorium was, but I looked it up. (laughs) And it turns out that a natatorium is just a fancy name for indoor swimming pool. Um, So I came, applied for the job, got it. And, you know, what's significant about the natatorium or the, the Civil Rights Heritage Center is that it is housed in this former swimming pool that was built in 1922 in South Bend, first indoor swimming pool in South Bend, and that at the time we think it was the largest indoor swimming pool in the state of Indiana. Actually, in 1922, it also fully excluded African Americans for the first 14 years despite it being a public facility, municipally funded. And so that fight to challenge exclusion and racism here in South Bend was successful after 14 years to shift it from being a fully excluding African-American to segregating African-Americans. So one one little incremental step, right? Um, And that segregation looked like one day a week black people could use this pool and you know the ongoing fight for full inclusion um, was successful again in 1950 so for 28 years blacks were excluded or segregated it closed in 1978 this pool did um, and sat as an abandoned building but it was through the efforts of of college students who, um, and I can tell it's a much longer story, but a group of college students who went on what became known as a freedom summer tour. A professor took them to historic civil rights sites in the Deep South, and they visited places like Selma, Alabama, and walked across the Pettus Bridge. They went to Birmingham to the 16th Street Baptist Church where the four little girls were bombed and killed. Um, they went to Memphis and visited the Lorraine Motel, but on the way they also stopped in Money, Mississippi in the Delta and visited the store where Emmett Till allegedly whistled at this white woman and was lynched for it. So, This group of students came back to South Bend after this two-week trip, really curious about what the civil rights movement looked like locally. They wanted to know what did, what were folks doing in South Bend, in the 60s. And the way they got at that was by doing oral histories of older African-Americans who lived through that period. And what they found in those oral histories was Black folks talking about this natatorium. And by by the early 2000s, people had forgotten about it because it had been abandoned since 1978. But they went and found it. And what this group of students recognized was that this building and the work and the the, the, um, activism that folks had engaged in to integrate it, that it represented one of the few remaining symbols of the local civil rights struggle here in South Bend. And with a lot of pressure from the university and bringing the city in as partners, bringing other community organizations, they decided that the building needed to be preserved, um, that it represented a critical part of this local history. And they converted it and repurposed it into a civil rights center, which is what it is now. Um, and I came in as director in 2015, um, and it was kind of fumbling. They didn't quite know how to manage this, so I was the third director in five years when I came. Um, and but I immediately saw, you know, kind of both my experience as an organizer. Um, I saw the immediate potential. In part because it was clear that the black community here in South Bend really cared about this space. Um, I had two job interviews when I came to interview. I had two interviews. One was on campus because I was hired by the university, so I had to kind of meet with the faculty and the deans and yeah, you know, had that. But I had a second interview at the Natatorium in the space that was a community interview, and so the place was packed people clearly wanted to make sure that the next director knew what the hell they were doing. And so they they grilled me, man. And the, for me, that was really powerful because I saw that this wasn't just a university space, but this was a community space. And that they had deep potential for continuing to work to engage the issues of civil rights and social justice writ large, and not just locally, but connecting those local issues to what's happening regionally, nationally, internationally, even. Um, And that's kind of the work that I and how I think about the role that this center plays here in South Bend, but also connecting it with other centers around the country and, and with other, again, like minded activists and folks who are working in their local communities. but how do we build networks so that we're not working in isolation but we're working collectively we're learning from one another we're in ongoing conversations and discussions and so you asked earlier about or you mentioned reparations are one of the things we're, we're talking smart. about here locally
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know it's really kind of connected to the national what's happening in the, the national discussion around reparations so the you know and and it works on multiple levels right I mean, one is what harms have um, been perpetrated locally by the city, by the real estate companies, by the banks here in South Bend? How can we address that? Also, how can we connect those injustices and those harms with what other people are doing and experiencing in their local communities, and particularly when we're talking about racial justice? Um, the legacy of slavery that still continues to um, bear witness on what people's opportunities are about, are, are po- what opportunities are possible, and so you know, Indiana's, is in, you know, like California is kind of grappling with this, and so to some extent, Indiana was not a slave state, so there was technically there was never slavery condoned in Illinois, I mean Indiana, but indiana also in the 1920s when that matter this natatorium was built had one of the largest ku klux klan memberships of any state in the nation as well so we we've done kind of done some research and we have found that the county where um, the center is located in 1920s one in five native-born white men were card carrying members of the ku klux klan that's like fully 20%. And we know that that's 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 card carrying. We know that the sympathizers was even larger, right? Yeah. And so that's the legacy that we're still fighting in the kinds of housing restrictions and and restrictive covenants that went into where black people could live. Um the kind of stores you could shop in, um, that was operative down south, you know, was clearly that Jim Crow in the south, but it was also Jim Crow in the north. Okay. You know, we know Dr. King found that out when he tried to integrate a neighborhood in Chicago and Lawndale. And, you know, I had bricks and watermelons thrown at him mm-hmm. that the racism we and the, again, this is something that the students found and, and kind of part of their own development that we're kind of taught or socialized that Jim Crow and all of that segregation was a sudden phenomenon but it was a national phenomenon. And um, how do we how do we address that? And how do we um, repair the harms that was engendered by this national phenomenon of anti-Blackness? And and I think part of how we do it in what we're working on here is building interracial coalitions of folks who are working together um, to both change the structures that produce the harms While simultaneously continuing to educate people about how they were produced to begin with, so that we don't repeat that, Mm -hmm. and restorative justice is a critical piece of that as well.
0: What was the impact? A couple of, uh, one or two questions off of that. One, what is the 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 what was the impact of of course. The monumental pandemic and and George Floyd's death, <clears throat> um, and also as a community, how is the community how is the community taking to some of the the work that's already being put put ahead? Um, the the Civil Rights Heritage Center, you just deal with restorative justice. Um, you're speaking about reparations it's also an adult educational center uh, serves as an adult educational center for writing, for thinking um, black history month celebrations other forms of celebrations mm-hmm. and events how is, the, how is the community reacting to to um, this I mean you took over 2015 so it's not so new but to me it's, it feels new it sounds new mm-hmm. it's, it's, it sounds like a lot of exciting activities how is mm-hmm. the community um, responding to it
1: you know, it's, it's really amazing, and part of why I'm still in South Bend is because there what I found when I first came in that first interview when that center was packed with people who wanted to know who was going to be the director. That there's a really it's it's small, but it's a really vibrant and active progressive community here. Um, that you know, the South Bend is an in, is a, an industrial city. It grew. It kind of came into being as an industrial city. It was. It was um, the home of Studebaker cars. Um, so almost any and everything that was manufactured anywhere in the U.S. was meant There was a there was a factory here at one point in the history of this town. So it had a long labor history, um, and it also has a fairly large African American community. Um, the black community is roughly thirty percent of the city, and folks are engaged. It's it's a Democratic Party's um, blue bubble in the middle of a very red state. Um, So the work that we're doing at the center has been really recognized. People have wrapped their arms around it. I feel like fully supported um, both by my university um, and the way they support me, which is great is by generally by leaving me alone (laughs) to do my without trying to micromanage or dictate. And I know where the lines are and I periodically I'll step across them and maybe get spanked a little bit for it. But that's all that's all good. Yeah, um, But the community has really um, embraced it. And so the center has become this real vibrant hub of community activism. Um, it's not only a place where we do cultural events and educational events, but it's a meeting space for grassroots organizations um, that are doing work on ranging from there's a housing um, coalition of folks that are working on affordable housing and addressing some of the housing injustice there's healthcare, the healthcare disparities that Black people national, you know, experience nationally. We have it here, and there's folks who we engage the the county health department, which was just taken over by a, a, a grossly right wing coalition of of folks, and they're beginning to defund the community health efforts that have been put in place. And so there's a lot of pushback against that, and so the center plays is kind of a pivotal role for folks to um, gather around and to to wage these local fights for justice. And so that, so I, you know, again, I think that the reception has been incredibly welcome because I think people have been wanting and needing just kind of a center or a focus where they have somebody like me who has kind of the experience and um, commitment in the physical space to be able to um, have a platform to host events that are of community interest and concern.
0: On, on a personal level for you, how, how does it feel to have gone through this journey that you've described to me um, You know, as a military child and then being being introduced to philosophy in your college years and getting introduced in closer to writing, working in D.C., working or uh, living in New York, then then pursuing your master's in in Chicago, and then it leading you all the way to this road of being the director in of this Civil Rights Center in South Bend. The prior history of the center, um, with its racism and its segregation, and now allowing. Um, Black folks to be involved in in some of the programs that were there, and now you have a space where people can come speak and people can come share their ideas and 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 be collective and learn from each other. How does that feel for you personally um, to be a part of this, and and what does it do to you emotionally um, mm-hmm. as a as a as a black man in America?
1: Mm-hmm. No, 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 thank you for that question because it's it's really deep, right? I mean, for me personally, you know, when when I first um, began working with farm workers and I kind of got radicalized in my early twenties, you know, I was like one of these young, impatient revolutionaries, man. I'm like I wanted revolution today. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> like this, this, like people are dying and it's not okay. They're like this, this is some serious business, right? And I want revolution today. Yesterday would have been better, but I'll take today. <laughs> And you know, as i had gotten older and realized that that change is not going to happen in the cataclysmic, you know, storm in the barricades kind of way. It's like really kind of how do we, how do I use my time? How do I use my gifts? How do I use my energy to build a world that I want my children to live in? Right. And I don't. I am. I'm fully aware. I'm not going to see that world. It's the the, the struggle is going to go way beyond my lifetime and i think about what i do now i i do it so that my children's children's grandchildren will have that world and i'm pretty and fully convinced that unless i do my part now they won't have that world the world won't happen without me doing my part now and even though i don't i won't see it they will and that, that's kind of my faith and my belief um but the fight for justice is just a fight that needs to happen. And, you know, like I said, like I said, what outrages me the most is that people are dying and people are dying needlessly because of greed, of racism, of patriarchy. Um, you know, I I, I teach in a women and gender studies program here uh, at the university, which is which is an interesting place to end up as a black man um, teaching women gender studies. But I find it really a comfortable place to be because they can engage all the issues around intersectionality and to really have the fact that, you know, not just a man, but I'm black, I'm a black man. And then for women of color in my class who don't who can go through their entire college life and never have anyone address intersectional issues that are particular to women of color like I can offer that support to them and teach them and give them um more ammunition so to speak to build themselves up in their own pride and their own sense of self like I can make that's one of the contributions I think of making that I find incredibly satisfying um to you know it's a but this is a predominantly white institution so I really look to to um give something to my students of color uh, my BIPOC folks uh, you know who or who i wrap my arms around here yeah and um yeah for me that's satisfying i i i can i can go for a distance on that energy and that love (laughs) yeah
0: that sounds that's that's really great to hear and and um i'm satisfied for you in a sense (laughs) when when i hear you speak of all the work it must be so satisfying to just bring people together and 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 um give them this space to, to, to have a great collective experience. Um, lastly, with Juneteenth, Juneteenth being kind of signed into being a holiday in 2021, um, it's something, I mean, uh, as a, has a idea, as a holiday, what it represents has been around, but it being an official holiday. And I remember for myself on Juneteenth, it may have been of last year walking around you could kind of feel it was brand new because people were kind of figuring out how mm-hmm. to celebrate um you know the older generation was doing it more in their way and the younger generation was doing it more right. in their way with music and different people were doing different things and it hit me that yeah, this is new like people are gonna we're either gonna have to figure out how we're celebrating this or it will just mm-hmm. continually be this emergent celebration how yeah. h- how how is Juneteenth experience been for yourself personally, and how has it been for the South Bend community? And what are mm. some of the things maybe in the future you hope to to bring to Juneteenth?
1: Yeah, no, good good question. Again, you know, and again, South Bend Black community here in South Bend has been celebrating Juneteenth for decades. Mm, okay. You know, and so it's always been something that been acknowledged here in the in the local community. Um, so I think when I my first year here, I went to a Juneteenth celebration that was organized by the local NAACP. Um and there's a um there's an organization statewide, but it has a a, a South Bank chapter called Indiana Black Expo. That's kind of been one of the carriers of that, of that legacy and that history and making sure that it's not forgotten. So that's it's 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 very present. For me, I, I also talk to people about and not as a cautionary thing, but as something to be to use this as a moment to educate ourselves even more so because the question Juneteenth is a moment is a moment we can and should celebrate. But I, I also want to push folks to like why are we celebrate what what are we celebrating? Um, the fact that slaves, former slaves who should have been free were held in bondage longer than they should have. Right. And it's all well and good, and this is something I think about with reparations as well, and I connect it to somewhat that um, reparations for slavery is really important. We have to acknowledge in the accountability of this nation for what it did for almost for two hundred and forty-six years of enslaving people of African descent. That's 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 a heinous atrocity, right? I think that reparations, and I think we need to like use Juneteenth as one of these ways to think about what happened after slavery. Because you know, I think reparations for Jim Crow in the lynching and the exclusion and marginalization and segregation in the ways that Black people were not allowed to advance as quote unquote free people is almost, well, it's, it's in a very different way, has its own atrocity. Attached to it. And so while we celebrate Juneteenth, and I think we need to acknowledge that, we also need to remember the context in which it took place and then what, and also what happened immediately afterwards. The Black folks in Texas were told that they were free, but they know more than any of the other four million Black folks that were freed, you know, at the end of the Civil War. given the resources and or protections that they really needed to thrive. And that's what we need to keep fighting for. So we can celebrate Juneteenth and we also need to know that the struggle continues.
0: Yeah, with with some of these topics being a little heavy um, for people, what is your advice on how to engage in these type of conversations you know conversations of restorative justice mm-hmm. um, police brutality, race ethnicity um, and everything that goes along with it and then involving different people in different communities you know mm-hmm. we, we see on social media we see in a lot of different arenas it could get very heated and, and, and oftentimes go into an area that isn't so productive. Um, how, how 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 do we have these type of conversations how do we start these conversations if you have a uh, if you're a black person you have a friend who's white if you're white mm-hmm. and uh you have a friend who's black and something you're curious about something if you're mm-hmm. asian and you have a friend who's who's black if you're black and you have a friend who's asian and they've gone through right. their oppression and years you're, you're you're talking about slavery and 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 jim crow but uh unsympathetic to some of the things they have um encountered how do you mm-hmm. how do you have set the environment or the atmosphere or even a personal relationship to have these type of very heavy sometimes heavy difficult conversations
1: yeah no it's, it's really important because i don't think we're going to be able to change it unless we are we do find ways to to have these conversations and i and it, it's really important to one to meet people where they are um so i talk to a lot i do a lot of public talks and speaking here in in the region, and and until often to largely white audiences. And it's really kind of thinking very carefully, and and intentionally about how to say really hard things in ways that people can hear them, you know, in non judgmental, non moral ways. It's like that I I had, I did a talk yesterday, for example, and the subject of lynching came up. And i just looked around the room it's like none of y'all lynched anybody you don't need to feel guilty you personally don't need to feel guilty about lynching but you need to know about it (laughs) and you need to acknowledge it and we need to like figure out how we collectively can can address this 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 part of our history and we're not going to be able to address it by not talking about it so this movement by desantis and and folks in Florida banning what can be talked about in the classroom, whether it's gender and sexuality or race, because it makes someone feel uncomfortable. It's like, you know, it quite frankly, irritates and pisses me off because nobody gave a shit when black people were, were uncomfortable um, with the lessons in the history that was being taught that left them out, right? And so it's not about making people feel uncomfortable, but the history itself is uncomfortable. But it's also very real, yeah. And so I think how I engage it with folks is is really thinking about how do we how do we have this conversation in a non-moral way. But um, the charge I put to my friends, my white friends, and people who I encounter, and my white audiences, is, is it's on you to learn this history. Like I can tell you some stuff, but if you really care about justice, if you really care about the future of this country, if you even care about your your own children, you need to learn this history. You need to make sure that they know it. And we as Black people need to, we need to especially understand it and learn it. And not just Black history. I mean, again, part of the conversation I had yesterday was I don't forget exactly how it came up, but it was around the Chinese Exclusion Act. I mean, the, the one group that could Black people, um, taney in the dred scott decision said black people are not citizens the united states government said the chinese people cannot be citizens in 1882 like that's we we need to know understand all of this history yeah and we need to as oppressed people or people who have been oppressed really be conscious of not replicating that oppression on other folk
0: yeah reminds me of pedagogy of the oppressed a yeah, book. yes, great, yes. Great
1: book for people to um, check out. Yes, Ferry is is really, that's a really important one. Yeah,
0: and lastly here, thank you so much, Daryl, for, for taking part in this conversation and being part of, of All Power to Developing. When we say the phrase, all power to the developing, what does that mean to you?
1: Well, what it, I mean, it, it means everything. I mean, because I, I, I don't think that we can if we can re- realize our full humanity and our full capacity and potential if we're not developing and the developing in all kinds of ways um, but all power to the development to the developing means that there's power that power is possible as long as we're developing but if we stop developing or if we start moving backwards in that in that process then we lose power so i'm i'm with you all power to the developing i'm i'm on i'm on on that train
0: definitely and i hope that all the guests are on the train too because we're not getting off this train we're going to (laughs) keep developing as much as we can i would like to thank everyone for uh listening to all power to developing i'd like to thank our guest Daryl heller daryl if people want to keep in touch with you or they want to check out your work how can they find you
1: they can find me if you just google the civil rights heritage center um at indiana university the you'll come you'll find our center website um and you can you'll see a list of our upcoming events the work that we do um there's often statements about what's happening in the world today Um, i write periodically um so that's that's one of the best ways and then you you can get all my contact information off of that website as well
0: definitely thank you so much everyone for listening to all power to developing You can write us at podcast at eastsideinstitute.org if you would like to let us know how you're loving the the podcast. We are available on all major platforms. Google uh, Google Music, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora, uh, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, a whole host of major platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, comment on some of our stuff, like some of our posts. And let's keep this development trend going. All power to the developing. All power to the developing was made possible in part by Growing Social Therapeutics, the Baylor Wolf Fund.